Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, we are doing our last sermon in the Advent series. And in the Advent series, again, we've been looking at several major themes of Scripture and seeing how all these themes of Scripture really find their climax, their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're looking at this for Advent, right? Because Advent means coming and it means arrival. And so we're looking at the arrival of Jesus Christ and what is significant about Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas as as much as we do? And the reason why we do is because Christmas, the coming of Jesus, really is the moment when the whole earth changed, the whole world changed in in a big variety of ways. And so that's what we've been looking at this Advent uh, series and this Advent season. Uh, the very last sermon of the series that I want to preach this morning is looking at the theme of the, the image of God, the image of God. Uh, now, I know that um, language might be very familiar to you, might not be familiar to you. Uh, it comes from Genesis 1, when God created man. We'll, we'll read the verses that tell us that God created man in his image. And so we as human beings are created in the image of God. And yet that wasn't just kind of a a one and done thing as if uh, God made us and then we're kind of on our own. Rather, we see throughout scripture that part of God's purpose in all of redemptive history is that we would be conformed more and more to his image. We would become more and more like him. So we were created at the very beginning with this capacity to bear the image of God, and yet God wanted to grow this capacity, to build this capacity that we would truly image him more and more. And so that's what we want to look at as we go to God's word this morning. So Jen will come and read for us from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which tells us about how God created man in his image. Then Moira will come and read for us from Romans 3, 9 to 18. This is an emphatic statement of how we lost that image, how we rejected God, turned away from the people that we were supposed to be. Luke 1, 35 tells us of the man that God sent to redeem this image, one who was fully man, therefore an image bearer of God and yet was God himself because he was born by the Spirit. And so Josiah will read that for us from Luke 1, verse 35. Uh, And then lastly, uh, Nate will come and read for us from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, which points us forward, looking to that glorious day that we're waiting for when we truly will experience the fullness of our being in the image of God in a way that we cannot experience right now. But we look forward to a day when our bodies will be changed, everything about us will be changed, we'll be glorified in the presence of God, and we will fully bear his image. So in that way, we're, again, looking at this trajectory, looking at this story of the image of God uh, throughout Scripture. And so with that, uh, Jen, if you'd like to come and begin our readings for us from Genesis chapter 1. This is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. 
What then? Are Jews, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There, for the child to be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 35 through 49. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, as we look at this theme this morning of the image of God, I think we'll see that it answers one of the most profound questions that any of us could really have about ourselves. And that profound question that we all have about ourselves is the Seemingly straightforward question, but very difficult to answer is, who am I? Who am I? What is it that defines me? How is it that I'm supposed to know what I'm supposed to do with my life? What is my calling? What's important about me? What's special about me? These questions that we all have, wanting to know who we are, wanting to know our place in the world, wondering if we're significant or if we're not significant. And in that way, kids, I hope that you see that this question is just as relevant to you as it is to any of us adults. As you grow up, you're going to be asking the question as well, who am I? What does God want me to do? What what do I need to do with my life? And this idea of the image of God is intended to answer that question for you. 
It's intended to give you that direction, to tell you who you are and what you're supposed to do with your life. And so I hope that you can benefit from this message no less than the adults can benefit from this message. There are a lot of weird ideas going on in our culture and in the world around us about how we identify who we are, how we know who we are. Um, I was just recently reading a book that won several awards and Really, the whole book revolved around this main character asking this question of who he is. And the, the main way that he was wrestling with the question of who he is is he was looking at the issue of race. And he felt like who he was was supposed to be defined by his race. And yet because he didn't really fit into any racial category, he always had an enormously difficult time identifying who he was. He was a Jamaican immigrant to the United States. And he wasn't accepted in the black community because his skin was not dark enough to be accepted by the black community. He wasn't accepted by the Hispanic community, even though he looked Hispanic because he couldn't speak Spanish. He wasn't accepted by the white community because, of course, he didn't look white either. And so he was wrestling over and over again, who am I? What am I? How do I fit into this world? And a lot of the troubles that he experienced, a lot of the angst that he knew was angst precisely because he did not know this fundamental truth that he is created in the image of God. And instead of thinking of himself as created in the image of God, he thought of himself as instead some placeholder for a certain racial identity. And then when he couldn't figure out that racial identity, he didn't know what to do with his life. He didn't know who he was and what kind of person he should be. Now, I know that most of you in this room probably do not relate very directly to that experience. But I think we've all had questions at different points in our lives of who are we, wanting to know how we fit in, and looking even to wrong things for the source of our identity and significance. You who are parents, who are fathers or mothers, there's probably been times where you thought your your whole identity, what you were supposed to do in life, was simply to be a good dad or to be a good mom. And if you were to lose that identity of being a mother or father, you would be lost. You wouldn't know what to do with yourself. There might be some of you in this room that for several years poured yourself into your work and you thought that your main identity was to be a great employee, to accomplish great things. And because you poured yourself in that, because you sought your identity from there, your emotions always rose or fell on the basis of how well work was going, how good the company was doing. You see, all of us are seeking to get our image, are seeking to get our identity from somewhere or something. And the reason why we're all seeking to get our identity or our image from somewhere or something is precisely because of what we learn in Genesis 1, that we are created in the image of someone. Namely, we are created in the image of God. And so the most fundamental reality that we have to have our eyes open to, that we have to see when we see that we are created in the image of God, is to see that we as human beings cannot stand alone. We cannot come up with our own identity, come up with our own purpose, come up with our own meaning just out of ourselves as if there were no God, as if God were absent and as if I were able out of my own wisdom, out of my own brilliance, out of my own research or experience or whatever it may be, as if I could somehow make myself significant or give myself meaning. 
You see, that will never work because we were created in the image of God. We were created in the image of another. We are a reference point to another. Therefore, we will never understand ourselves if we do not understand God, in whose image we were created. If we don't know God, we will not know ourselves. We will not know our true purpose, our true identity, because we will not know who God is and what God has done and what God wants from us. We will not know the image of the one that we, whose image we are created in. If we do not know him, we cannot know ourselves and our own purpose. And so this idea that we are creating the image of God really has ramifications for all of life, for everything that we do. Because, of course, everything that we do, we do as image bearers of God. We do as individuals who are called to reflect God in every way. And so this idea of what does it mean for us to be created in the image of God, who are we most fundamentally, is critical for everything. Now, one way I want to encourage you to think, just at the outset of this message, and I find this so healthy in so many areas of life, but especially in thinking here about the image of God, is to try to think of yourself and think of this world that we live in, not in the the scientific materialist terms that are so often put upon us by our modern education and by the culture around us, but rather to think of the world that we are in, and to think of our identity more as like a fairy tale or a fantasy story, okay? Where there can be beings that are, are mythical, uh, there can be powers that are greater than us, there can be things that are mysterious. Because I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, things like fantasy stories, science fiction, whatever you want to call it, can actually better reflect the world we're in than the idea that everything is just matter in motion, right? That everything just kind of works according to the laws of physics all the time, and that's just the end of it. Because at the end of the day, if that's how you think of the world we're in, if you think that the world that we're in is really just matter in motion, then there is no basis that we have for the dignity of humans or for humans just as beings ourselves to have any kind of purpose or any kind of meaning, right? I mean, if we did just kind of completely evolve from dust over eons and eons, and, and if we're just kind of more highly developed primates, well, then it's silly to talk about us as having a particular purpose or meaning. It's silly for us to ask the question, who am I? And to wrestle with that as if we were significant in any way. We might as well just get over ourselves and get used to the fact that we're here to have pleasure for a little while, and then we're going to die. And that's all there is to life. And so instead of thinking in these materialistic terms where there is nothing special about human beings, think about the world again more as if it were a fantasy story or something like that. And then if you're thinking of the world in those categories and these words enter into your consciousness, enter into your mindset that you were created in the image of God, then suddenly... It's like in your mind, the possibility opens up that you are called to something high and noble, that you are called to something much higher, much greater than any other created thing is called because you were uniquely created in the image of God. I think the the story, the Chronicles of Narnia, captures this reality really well because uh, when 
Is it uh, Lucy who's the first to go through the wardrobe and to, to find uh, the other side of the wardrobe? She goes in and she went into this world where there were no humans, right? Where there were lots of other mythical creatures of every kind, but there were no humans. And as soon as they met a human, they got really excited, right? And why did they get excited? Well, because there had been a prophecy that a daughter of Eve and a son of Adam would one day come and would remake Narnia, right? Would make it a beautiful place again. And this idea that we all are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, the idea that we are all destined to recreate the cosmos in a particular way is much closer to the meaning of what Genesis has for us, of us being created in the image of God, much closer to that idea than, again, any idea that we are simply homo sapiens, part of the animal kingdom, right? We are not mainly just a clump of cells, who are supposed to go about our lives seeking earthly pleasure and earthly goods. We are beings created in the image of Almighty God, uniquely created in the image of Almighty God. And again, having this knowledge and recognizing just the amazing wonder and significance that we have been created in this way can give enormous hope to our lives, give enormous fuel to our lives, give enormous ambition to our lives. Not because we think that we in ourselves are anything really great, but because we're simply submitting to the truth of what God says about us. And we're wanting to be faithful to what God has. Now, when I look at Genesis 1 and I look at how God created us in his image and after his likeness, I want to condense the significance of this to really two main things for us this morning. Two main things. The first thing that it means that we have been created in the image of God is that we have been given a relational capacity, a relational capacity. Now, kids, I know those words might be a little over your head. All it means is that we can know God. We can know God. If God created us in his image, that means we were created so that we could know him, so that we could see him as he is. And again, this is a unique capacity. Nothing else has this, right? Dogs, cats, other animals, plants, they cannot know God in the way we can know God. That's because they were not created to image God in the way that we were created to image God. I love thinking of human beings with a picture of a, of a mirror. That ultimately, what is our purpose in life? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're supposed to be a mirror. If we're creating the image of God, we're supposed to be a mirror that's kind of like bent 45 degrees, if you will, right? That there's God up on high, and so we're bent up toward him. And as God, being light, shines on us, and as we're bent at this 45-degree angle, the light of God is coming on us, and we as image bearers of God are reflecting that light to the created world. We're reflecting it horizontally. We have this capacity as mirrors, to know God, that is to see him as he is, and then to reflect his nature to others around us. We are a mirror. Did you know it's actually possible to start a fire with a mirror? If you have a mirror that's the right shape and you have some dry twigs, and if you have a sunny day, you know, if you point that mirror just right to get that sun to shine onto those twigs, then that mirror can actually set those twigs ablaze, can start a fire. That's just such a great image of what we are supposed to be as image bearers of God. We are supposed to be pointing our face 
toward God as if He were that shining, radiant sun. And we are pointing our face toward Him. And then we, as mirrors, are getting all this beautiful light from God. And then as we receive that light from God, we are redirecting that light toward others around us, toward our families, our workplaces, our neighbors, wherever we may be. We are reflecting that light that God has shown upon us because we are image bearers of God. We are like mirrors. That's what it means for us to be image bearers of God. We have this capacity to reflect God. We have this capacity to know God. The second thing that this means, that we're creating the image bearers of God, is that we have a particular calling. We have a purpose, and that purpose is to further God's dominion, to further God's kingdom, to expand his kingdom, to grow his kingdom. This is probably the most obvious characteristic of us being created in the image of God that we see in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 Going to verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that's what he says. And then the very next thing that he says, he says, and let them have dominion or have rulership, have reign over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over every, uh, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he's, he says, I'm going to create man in my image. I'm going to give them dominion. And then in verse 27, God creates man in his image. And then he blesses them. And what does God say when he blesses them? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this idea of dominion or having rulership or reign over the earth is very central to the idea that we have been created in the image of God. And again, this makes complete sense, does it not? If God himself is the ruler of all creation, if he is the one who reigns over everything that exists, and we are created in his image, we are created as mirrors of him, well, then it must be the case, must not, that we ourselves have some kind of reign, have some kind of rule, have some kind of dominion. This is what it means that we have been created in the image of God. Now, how do we expand this dominion? How do we expand the, the rule of God on the earth? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a couple of hints. The first thing that Genesis 1 tells us is in, again, those words of blessing that God has, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So one way we expand the reign of God is by having children, <laughs> making more image bearers of God. The more image bearers of God there are, the more the image bearers of God fill the earth, the more the dominion of the image bearers of God is going to fill the earth. The second way that we see that we're supposed to expand the dominion of God, we see in Genesis 2 verse 15. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So God made Adam and Eve in his own image, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and then gave them a job to do in the garden. What did God want them to do in the garden? He wanted them to work it and keep it. 
Now, Genesis 2 tells us that there, there was this Garden of Eden, and everywhere outside the Garden of Eden, it was wilderness, it was barren, it was wasteland. And so what I understand to be the case when God gives this command to Adam to work and keep the garden, as he's essentially telling Adam that as you cultivate this garden, as you make sure it flourishes and it grows, then the borders of this garden are going to expand. And as you have children, and as you're fruitful and multiply, and as they do the work that I've called them to do, this garden is going to grow and grow and grow. And eventually, the whole earth is not going to be a barren wasteland anymore, but the whole earth is going to be a beautiful garden filled with my image bearers. That was God's original idea. That was his original plan for mankind. So we, as God's image bearers, reflecting the glory of God, are to take things that are wilderness and are to give them order, or to give them beauty. And so all of you, as you go about the work that you have from nine to five, kids, as you go about school and you learn things like math and history, as you go about hobbies, other things that you enjoy, whether it's taking care of plants or painting or whatever it is, all of these things that we do, we are doing them because we bear the image of God. And because as image bearers of God, we want to order the earth. We want to beautify the earth. We want to fill the earth. We want to turn things that are ugly and broken, and we want to fix them and repair them and make them new and good and beautiful. And we do this, again, because we are image bearers of God. And so it pleases God when we do these things. And we should have the mindset in all that we do, as the book of Colossians tells us, we should never do our work simply as unto men, right? Even if you're getting paid to do some kind of beautifying of the earth, you shouldn't do it for the money. Don't do it for the pay. Do it because in your own little area of responsibility, you have the opportunity to serve the Lord, to bring order to the earth, to bring beauty to the earth in the same way that God himself originally created the earth with order and with beauty. And so, kids, the reason why you're in school right now is because you're having to learn things so that when you grow up and when you're able to do work, you're able to do your work well. You're able to do it in a way that really does bring order and bring beauty to what you do. Otherwise, if you don't know how the world works, you're just going to create a mess. And that's not what God created us to do. He created us to make things beautiful and orderly. And that is how we image God. So again, these two aspects of us being image bearers of God. One aspect is we can look at God to behold him and we can reflect him on the earth. And then the other aspect is this aspect of dominion, of beautifying the earth, of making all things new. That this is what God wants from us as image bearers. This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. And again, understanding ourselves as human beings in this way is enormously helpful in terms of combating the many other identities, the many other purposes that the world might have for us, telling us that we do just have to fit into a certain racialized category or a certain sexualized category or some other kind of category that's supposed to define who we are. We know that none of these other categories can capture the beauty and the wonder of what it means to be human. And it can capture the fullness of who we are. 
Now, if this is true, if we have been created in the image of God so that we can truly behold God, and so that we can actually go about our work day to day to make things right, to make things beautiful and good, then this has two big implications for our lives. The first big implication it has for us is it has a major implication for how we treat others. It has a major implication for how we treat others. We as Christians treat others with respect, we treat them with dignity. We believe in the protection of life. We, for example, we're opposed to abortion. We're opposed to assisted suicide for the elderly. We're opposed to all these things because we believe that humans are created in the image of God. And therefore, everyone who is human deserves to be treated with honor, with dignity, because they are image bearers of God. Scripture itself makes this connection for us when murder is first forbidden in Scripture. In Genesis 9, verse 6, after the flood, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So do you hear why we're not allowed to kill others? We're not allowed to kill others because others are in the image of God. And so by killing others, you're thereby making some kind of statement that you hate the image of God, that you hate God. The way we treat others reflects the way we treat God, reflects the way we think about God. James in the New Testament puts an even sharper point on this. James is talking about the tongue and how we speak to others. James says, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father and with our tongues, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Do you see how if others are created in the likeness of God, if they have this capacity to behold God, how terrible is it for us to curse others, to use our tongues to put others down, to dismiss others as if they were unimportant or not worth thinking about or insignificant? There is no one who is insignificant. There is no one who has no value because everyone is created in the image of God. Did you know that the whole idea of human rights in the first place, the whole idea of all people being created equal and having certain inalienable rights, as it says in our Declaration of Independence, that idea can only come from this notion that we are created in the image of God. Again, take a scientific worldview, a materialistic worldview. There is no basis for human rights. Even take the worldview of some other religions where how good you are as a human being comes down to how enlightened you are, how far along the path you are, or whether you have converted to this or to that. But you see, the message of Christianity, the message of the Bible is that no, every human being has value because every human being is created in the image of God. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you have limited capacities in some way or another, if you are a human being, you have value. That's why James says that we cannot curse those who are made in the likeness of God. So that's the implication for us for how we treat others. We must always treat others with dignity and respect, never just putting them down, never just dismissing them. Everyone who is a human being is an image bearer of God. 
And this also obviously has enormous implications for us for how we go about our work. Again, if God has given us dominion, if Scripture tells us that we have been given dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth, and if the idea behind this dominion is that we then expand this garden of God, we expand the place of beauty, the place of God's presence, that that means that we're going to approach our work in a whole new way. If you work in a fast food place, it means that you're going to find ways in that fast food place to do your work with excellence, to do your work in a way that reflects how God is a God of order, how God wants even a fast food restaurant, to be a place of cleanliness, to be a place where people can experience enjoyment of good things. And so you're going to do your work with that mindset. In whatever capacity in which it is you work, you're going to find a way to say, I want to image God in my work. I want to do my work with excellence. If you're a parent, you're going to find a way To say, I want my kids to see God the Father and Jesus the Son in me. And so as I parent, I'm going to be asking the question, in what way am I rightly showing God to my kids? In what way might I be not showing God rightly to my kids in how I parent? In everything that we do, we're going to be striving to display, to refract this image of God in our work. I found this poem last week by J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the author of the, the Lord of the Rings. And J.R.R. Tolkien, his, his work was an author and a professor. And he had this very strong notion in all that he did that what he was doing was he was working as an image bearer of God, as a sub-creator of a greater creator who is God himself. And here's a little poem he wrote that captured the essence of this idea that we are created in the image of God, and we reflect God in our work. He says, Dear sir, I said, although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. Man, sub-creator, the, reflect, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. What Tolkien's getting at is that God has given each of us a way that we reflect his beauty, that we reflect his goodness, that we reflect his truth in the place that he has put us, in the neighborhood that he's put us, in the workplace that he's put us. And our aim in all that we do should be to say, Lord, you have given me this deposit, I'm going to be faithful to this deposit to glorify you in all that I do. Now, of course, we know that none of us have done this perfectly, right? We all have, with our tongue, cursed those who are image bearers of God. We all have, in our work, simply done it for the money. Simply done it just to say that you got the job done. And we haven't done it with excellence or thinking that we are doing it as image bearers of God. I mean, surely if, if any of us were to always bear the image of God perfectly in this way, we would be perfect, would we not? I mean, we would be amazing in our work. 
We would be amazing in, in the extent to which we sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, beholding him and always reflecting him to the world around us. But we know that none of us have done this right. We have all sinned and fallen short, as Romans 3 says, of the glory of God. That word for fallen short in Romans 3 is actually the word for lack, that we all have sinned and we lack the glory of God. You see, what, what sin is at a very deep level is it is a trading of the original glory that we were given, glory of the image bearers of God. It is a trading of that glory for things that are corrupt, for things that are deceitful, for things that fall apart, for things that are not eternal. It is a trading of something that is gold for something that is mud, for something that is dirt. We trade the glory of God for sinful garbage. And that is why sin causes us to lack the glory of God. Because we do not image God in our lives. We do not image God in our work. We do not image God in the sense of beholding him always and reflecting him to others. Rather, we find our meaning, we find our purpose from something or someone or somewhere else. And so we must have a Redeemer. Well, this is where the glorious news of Jesus Christ and his great work comes in. We read in Luke 1 that Jesus was born as a human being. And yet, though he was born as a human being, he was also born as very God of very God. And so in Jesus Christ, what we have is we have this perfect mirror, right? We have this perfect restoration of the image of God, whereas all of our mirrors were completely smashed and shattered. We were all unable in ourselves to actually focus our lenses, so to speak, to focus ourselves as mirrors on God. We were unable to do that. Jesus Christ was perfectly able to do that. He was so polished. He was so pure. He was so perfect in every way that he could perfectly show us God the Father. In fact, Jesus even said when the disciples asked him, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You see, Jesus perfectly imaged God. And he didn't only perfectly image God through his nature because he was God. Throughout his life, we see that he perfectly imaged God because he communed with God. He went to the Lord in prayer. He would regularly separate himself from all people, go out to wilderness places, go up on the mountain to pray for nights and nights that he would know God. He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he began his ministry because he wanted to behold God. And because Jesus was faithful in this way, and because he had this perfect character as the Son of God, he is able to restore our image as well. Jesus also perfectly endeavored to expand the garden, to expand the kingdom of God. 
Jesus saw perfectly what it was that was coming against God, that was coming against the renewal of all creation. Jesus saw the demonic powers that were attacking the people of God, that were deforming the good creation that God has made. And Jesus set about to defy those powers at every step along the way. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He forgave sin. And in doing these things, he was coming against all those things that distort and deform God's creation. And ultimately, Jesus would pay the highest price. He would pay the ultimate cost by dying upon the cross for you and for me. And because he died upon the cross, and because he rose again, he made a way so that as we look to him, our mirrors can be cleaned and restored. Our purpose can be renewed and actually accomplished, not overcome by the work of Satan, by the temptation to sin, but rather we can stand in Christ against sin to reflect God. We can stand in Christ against the devil and his destructive works to make things beautiful again, to make things clear again. I love this image In 2 Corinthians 3.18, of how we today are supposed to live our lives, it says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. We are transformed into the same image as we behold the glory of the Lord. And what does it mean to behold the glory of the Lord? Well, in 2 Corinthians 3, where this is stated, it's contrasting the law with the gospel. It says Moses had a veil over his face. He could not fully see the glory of the Lord. But we now, with unveiled face, can see the glory of the Lord. So what does it mean to see the glory of the Lord? Well, it means most centrally to see the glory of the God in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. In Jesus' substitutionary death for us and his substitutionary resurrection for us. So that as we behold both the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the mercy of God, the grace of God, as we behold these two things put together, as we behold that day after day after day, we ourselves become people who more fully represent the image of God. We become people of justice and of mercy. And so we are able once again to behold God, to reflect the image of God, and to advance the kingdom of God on this earth. Beloved, this is the best news for us that we could possibly have. Our lives are not in vain, our lives are not a waste, our lives are not hopeless. Rather, we can fulfill the very thing that we were created for, to know God and to make God known. And we can only do that as we look to Jesus Christ, beholding him always, and then seeking in every last moment of our day, in every last endeavor that we undertake, to say, I want to do this as a faithful image bearer of God treating others with dignity, with respect, with honor, setting God first above all things, and then striving to expand God's reign 
in all that we do. With that, would you go to the Lord with me now in prayer as we pray for God to do this work in our hearts? We can pray prayers of confession and also let's pray prayers of petition that the kingdom of God truly would grow and expand around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this enormous dignity that you have given us in creation to make us image bearers of God. Father, we recognize that you do not have to do things this way. You do not have to have some kind of intermediary between yourself and creation. And yet, Lord, you chose to make beings such as us who can behold you, who can know you, who can see you, and then who can show you to the world. God, I pray that you would help us to do that rightly. Help us to see you as you are, God, and then help us to show you truly to others. I pray now that as we come to you as your people, would you hear our prayers, God, and would you respond without delay? Lord, open our mouths, open our hearts now as we come to you in prayer.